Secretariat is in a position that seems impossible to catch. He's into the stretch. Secretariat leads this field by 18 lengths, and now twice a prince has taken second, and my gallon has moved back to third. They're in the stretch. Secretariat has opened a 22-length lead. He is going to be the triple crown winner. Here comes Secretariat to remember that guy, the sports podcast where we mine our memories from nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present. Hey, guys, enough horsing around. I'm James. I'm Diaz, your other co-host, and funnily enough, to go along with that call that James just provided, we do have the actor who played Secretariat in the award-winning film, also named Secretariat, Bojack Horseman, is here with us tonight, folks. Wait a second. Producer Craig's in my ear. Apparently, Bojack Horseman is a fictional character. So we're going to have to go to the bullpen, and let's go back to everybody's favorite special guest. Please introduce yourself. Yeah, that's right. Unfortunately, I'm not Bojack, and I'm not Vincent Adultman, but it is me, the special guest, Xavier. Welcome, Xavier. It's lovely to have you back once again. Uh, how are you guys doing right now? Who's making memories for y'all? So, just address the, the elephant in the room immediately. I was in attendance for the Thursday night return of one Ben Simmons. It was a great, fun atmosphere until... They started playing basketball. I don't have much more to say about it. Did get to participate in some good chants towards Ben Simmons. I did think it was very funny that he had a smug smile on the bench like he was actually doing something when he was literally doing nothing. But that's all I'm going to say about that. I do want to move on to a person who's making positive memories for me that also played in a game on March 10th for Newcastle United. The Brazilian wonderkind Bruno Guimaraes making his first start for Newcastle. He made a few appearances prior with an absolute world-class goal for a world-class player. He was just called up to play for Brazil's international team in their upcoming games. A backheel volley for his first goal in the Premier League. Absolute insanity. I thought it was setting the tone for just a great day for my personal sports rooting interest. It wasn't quite the way it worked out, but... I am wearing my Newcastle shirt, as all of the lovely listeners at home can clearly see. Bruno Gimaraes, thank you for making positive memories for me on a day that I hope would have a lot of positive memories, but it does have a lot of memories. And we'll leave it at that. Yeah. Toon Army. I had the privilege of, of working with a number of camp counselors from Newcastle over the years, and the only thing that I remember about Newcastle is Toon Army. Toon Toon, up the tune, going doon to tune, howie the lads. The Magpies. What else we got? Case of Brun. Newcastle Brown Ale. They just call it Brun up there. When is, uh, when is a trip to Newcastle in the cards for you? I gotta ask. It's gonna be very soon, especially now that we have had the takeover. That trip's only gonna get more and more expensive as the team continues to increase in quality. My goal would be within the next two years to, to okay. save up to make it a worthwhile trip. Gonna have to go for at least two weeks, probably catch at least two, three games while I'm over there. Catch the women's side. That's one of the great things about the ownership group. Newcastle women were kind of forgotten about in previous ownership. Of the many things that Mike Ashley fucked up, did not give two shits about the women's team, but the new owners have done a really good job of already investing in the women's team, meeting with the women's team to assure them that they are a priority. They're not an afterthought anymore, so... That's always very nice. So in short, I would say within the next two years. So we got we got March 11th, 2024. You heard it here first. That is the date by which we have to have Justin Diaz in the seat of uh, a Newcastle home game. By the fourth anniversary of Rudy Gobert Day, we have to make sure that you make it to a Newcastle game. Well, okay, we got, we got the Sixers. 
Uh, and and we can move past the Sixers quickly. Newcastle, which is great. Xavier, who you got for us right now? Um, so it's been a weird week for my teams. The Knicks, after losing 17 of 20 to completely tank out of the playoff race, decided to then start winning again and make sure that they couldn't get a high lottery pick uh, with three straight blowout victories on the road against the Clippers, the Kings, and the Mavs. Very strange. They can't just choose whether to be good or bad. They just have to keep switching. And then the Rangers, they've been great all season, have hit a little bit of a rough patch, two blowout losses in a row. Uh, the first one was with Georgiev in net, which unfortunately isn't a surprise. But uh, last night against the Blues, uh, even Igor had, you know, a, a down night. Had to get pulled for the first time this season. So hopefully, you know, the Rangers can pick things up at the trade deadline. And then, unfortunately, our Temple Owls earlier today forgot how to play basketball. Oof. And did lose uh, in the quarterfinals of the American Athletic Championship Tournament against Tulane when they decided to shoot a combined 28% from the field compared to Tulane's 52% from the field. And that 28% is a bit generous because it was much lower than that until they hit some garbage time buckets at the end. If I was going to take any positives from it, it was that they're still missing Caliph Battle. Damian Dunn was terrible. And Nick Jordan got benched after a technical foul and did not play the entire second half, meaning that Temple's two leading scorers, who combined for more than half of their 60 points, were Heiser Miller, a true freshman from Philadelphia who had 21, and Zach Hicks, a true freshman from Camden, who had 12. This is still a young team, the second youngest in all of the NCAA, behind only Dayton. So, you know, hopefully they learn from this. Probably not going to make any NIT or CBI this year, but I do still think that they can be an NCAA tournament team next year if they continue to grow. And also the Yankees did not sign Andrelton Simmons, which makes me happy because he is an anti-vaxxer and was being talked about as a stopgap uh, shortstop for them for the past, like, four months. I was about to defend Andrelton Simmons uh, until you mentioned the anti-vax thing. Uh, so that's great to learn. I appreciate that. Fuck him. Yeah, Here's he's like real open about I, it. <laughs> so I can't really say anything bad about anyone representing Temple in a tournament where they lose in the quarterfinals. I just don't really think that I have the standing to, to comment negatively on anyone uh, who's in that position. If you know, you know. That being said, this was a great season finale for season one of the story of this freshman pair from Camden, Philadelphia. You've just woven me a tapestry that's convinced me the next four years are going to be, sorry, next three years now or next three seasons. Uh, nothing but but sunshine and rainbows with these two guys as they go on some dramatic quest to, to restore Temple's national prominence in basketball. God, I hope so. We're getting there. It's It was always going to be an uphill battle overcoming the malaise of the Fran Dunphy era, right? But got some potential. I think McKee's building up a good program up there. I would say tournament needs to be the goal next year. I think if they continue to build with as young as they are, there's really no reason they can't make that leap. So it would be nice because uh, the last legitimate tournament run we had was when we were all sophomores, which was 10 years ago. Oh, God. Pretty fucking crazy. Love them. Yeah, Khalif Love Wyatt, baby. The original bucket and problem of basketball, in my opinion. Well, I, f- I feel a little bad because I got nothing but good vibes right now, man. We're going to have, for the first ever year, ESPN WNBA Fantasy, which you two are hereby in this moment being compelled to join a league uh, that I will be running with. I don't know who else, but you two do not have the option of opting out of this. Don't worry, We're I'm going to be in anyway. All in, baby. Hey, that is a hashtag slogan by the Las Vegas Aces organization. 
Listen, I am committed to the Aces until, as referenced previously, until the Kathy Engelbert gets her shit together and awards a team to Philadelphia that is long overdue. But in the interim, I will give the Aces my loyalty first and Elena Deladon just slightly behind. Still big on EDD, but... Wasn't there an issue with the Aces and Clemson having the same tagline? So when you did hashtag all in for the Aces... It brought up the Clemson Tiger Paw. I remember that. Yeah, 100%. Yes, college football was preempting uh, WNBA basketball, 100%. But hey, that happens. We're going to focus on the positives, which is that I'm finally going to find a way to win a fantasy league championship. This is it. This is the first one I'll ever win. And while we're doing that this summer, we will also be watching baseball because we do finally have baseball coming again, uh, as, as you meshed there with Angleton Simmons. Uh, I was reminded today... That Rugnet Odor is probably the Orioles' starting second baseman this year. That's a pretty good summation of, I think, the upcoming Orioles season. But you know what? Baseball's back. Not as large as it should have been. Probably, I believe, 700000 is the new minimum salary. It's going to increase by 20000 in the next couple years. Uh, $50 million for the pre-arbitration bonus pool is very cool. It is nowhere near enough, but it is very cool that that pool is there to, to further enrich players with three years or less of service time. Like, Vladito otherwise would, would once again be be basically making minimum wage this next uh, upcoming year. We don't have 14 teams in the playoffs. God, I don't ever want them to get to 14. 10, I think, was a perfect number. I really genuinely love the wild card game. I think 10 was just right. I'm a little bummed about 12. We'll live with it. What Maybe I now the about, Orioles can make it. What I liked about 10 is it placed a lot of emphasis on winning your division to avoid mm-hmm. that one game anything can happen baseball thing 12 as a Phillies fan. I do like it because I I think we would have made the playoffs each of the last three years if they had done 12. So personally, I do like it without a bias. I do like it, but no, I do. I do objectively agree. I think 12 is too much. I wish they went back to eight. I I liked eight a lot. I don't like the wild card game. I've never liked the wild card game. I think it's really dumb to decide anything with one game for a, a sport where the regular season is 162 games long. I 100% disagree. <clears throat> game 160. Here's my least favorite thing about this is that game 163s have been eliminated by this agreement because we've had game 163s forever. The wildcard game is really just making sure we get one of those every year. And I hear you, Yankees fan who has seen many negative wildcard games. And I've seen many great ones. I've, I'm pretty sure I've seen us win more wildcard games than we've lost past season notwithstanding. I just liked when it was a rare game. We would have had the game 163 this past year between the Yankees and Red Sox anyway. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure we finished with the exact same record. I, I, would, I liked when it was rare and not just a, no, we're forcing these one-game playoffs because then you have stuff where you have the Giants who win 100 games. And by nature of just happening to be in the division with the best team in baseball, having to play a wild card game where anything can happen and they have to burn a bunch of pitchers just to then go into a series against the best team in baseball that was in their same division. I feel like it's too much of a penalty for being a great team in a good division and a bonus for being a good team in a bad division. Teams that are almost always better than some of the worst division leaders are penalized with this one game playoff where even if they win, they're in a bad situation to start the next, the next series because there's so little time in between. It's not like you win and then you have a week off. You're not wrong. And I do think 
that the number going forward is going to make this more of an issue and, and feel more unfair because a division winner is going to still be left in, in that four teams going for the next two spots in the divisional series. So I don't disagree with you on that. I, I just personally felt like five was the sweet spot. I just really thought five was, was the money. We'll see how it goes, but the good news is at least we will see it. There is baseball. It's a deal that does still favor the owners too much, but God damn it, we've got baseball coming, baby. But enough about what's happening right now. Diaz, you spoke so beautifully about her last week, and it so moved our hearts that we gave you that spot. So for our next step, I would love for you to tell me how we landed on our guys for this week. Absolutely. So Herb, as we mentioned was a one-time holder of the record for most wins in NCAA men's college basketball history. Currently sits number two on that list, but that got the proverbial wheels of the Remember That Guy crew turning. And we thought that it would be great to dive deeper into the record books. We want to honor some guys that have, shall we say, unusual records or perhaps records that you would not initially think of when you consider their sport, when you consider the all-time great records. So we're not going to be talking about Joe DiMaggio. We're not going to be talking about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. We're not going to be talking about Wayne Gretzky. We're going to be talking about guys on the periphery of the record books. One of the first guys to spring to mind for me, I had two hockey guys that I was debating for consideration this week. The first one is the guy that I'm not going to talk about, but I will briefly touch on him. Brian Boucher, goalie for the Flyers and many other teams throughout his NHL career. An incredible rookie run with the Flyers to the Eastern Conference Finals. They were up 3-1 on the New Jersey Devils until Notorious piece of shit, Scott Stevens, delivered a vicious blindside elbow to Eric Lindros' jaw and knocked him out for the series. And the Devils came back to win that series 4-3. But that was not the record that Brian Boucher hold. He actually gained this record later in his career when he was with the San Jose Sharks. He set the NHL record for most consecutive shutout minutes played by a goalie. Ooh, he's the Oral Hershiser of hockey. I don't have this confirmed because, again, I didn't get too deep into the research for, for good old Boosh. I do believe that record has since been surpassed, but for a time, he was the record holder there. So what, Oral, Oral has most consecutive shutout innings, I believe? Oral Hershiser's most consecutive scoreless innings. Johnny Vandermeer is most consecutive no-hit innings. Right, right. So I was debating bringing up Boosh. One of the best commentators now for, for NHL, I believe. It's like, you know, imagine if Pierre Maguire was likable between the glass. That, that's really what Bouche is. But that's not the Flyers goaltender that I decided to go with. The Flyers goaltender that I decided to go with is somebody who my father has actually been compared to a lot, just in, in terms of their looks. They both have the slicked back hair now in their older age. They both have the goatees. Uh, my dad loves rocking a good goatee. And uh, so does Ron Hextall, is okay. who I'd like to submit for consideration this week. He has a couple records that are worth mentioning. First off, he is the first goaltender to ever score a goal. He did so. Wait, wait. He is. It took that long for a goalie to score a goal? So this is, I'll get ahead of myself a little bit, but part of okay. Ron Hextall's thing was, you know, goalies were always just known as like, look, they got all the big equipment on. They're not very nimble. He's just like, listen, stay in, stay in the crease. 
block the pucks, don't skate anywhere. Ron Hextall was one of the first guys to say, fuck that. I am an athlete too. I am able to skate. I am able to handle the puck. I am able to be a hockey player. Hextall was really the first guy to inspire that kind of aggressive goaltending in terms of handling the puck. You know, Marty Brodeur is probably the most well-known goalie to, to have that kind of aggressive style. Uh, Marc-Andre Fleury would be another guy uh, more recent that exhibits that as well. But Ron Hextall was the first one to really, you know, embrace that and to expand the horizons of what a goalie can be. So, he thought outside the crease. He thought very outside the crease. So his and, and so that goal was scored in his second season with the Flyers. And, you know, Ron wasn't too humble about it when it happened. So it was the 87-88 season, December 8th. It was against the Boston Bruins with an empty net goal. Nolan, if you're listening, fuck the Bruins. 100%. Absolutely <laughs> forever. Nolan is a friend of the podcast. The Bruins are not. Hextall afterwards, they're interviewing him about it. And he was, you know, obviously the reporters are asking, oh, Ron, how does it feel to be the first goalie to ever score in an NHL game? Oh, it must be incredible. Did you ever think that this would happen? And he said, I don't mean to sound cocky, but I knew it was just a matter of time before I flipped one in. So we're talking about it. like eight decades of NHL hockey. No goalie ever has even just flicked it down the ice. And he, in his second season, gets his first one. His second season. And this is, you know, again, we're, we're, we're going to jump around a little bit now. So th- his second season, he becomes the first goalie to score a goal and an NHL game. His first season is even more impressive. So with the Flyers, he was drafted in 84, but he spent a few years bouncing around between the IHL, the AHL. But after proving himself down there, he earned the award for the AHL's Outstanding Rookie Player. And Hextall reflected positively on this. He said, the two years that I spent in the AHL prepared me well to be able to come up into the NHL. And he hit the ground running when he came to the NHL. So... He starts 66 games as a rookie, even like, especially by modern standards. I don't think you see any goalie playing 66 games in an 82 game season. They just don't no, do that anymore. Because I don't remember exactly how long the AHL season is, but I don't think it in its entirety is 66 games. So Hextall's rookie year starts at 66 games, wins 37 of them, and has a 3.00 flat goals against average, which in a modern context may not sound great, but you need to understand just how explosive offense was in hockey in the late 80s. I mean, and this is not to diminish what Wayne Gretzky has accomplished. He is the greatest hockey player of all time. But part of the reason why he was able to put up the numbers that he did is just because of how offensively friendly hockey was in that era. So to only allow three goals a game then, incredibly impressive. So impressive, in fact, that in his rookie season, he actually wins the Vezina. As a rookie, he wins the Vizina. And spoiler, this is the only year he ever won the Vizina. So he comes in as a rookie, does not win the, the Calder for the, the rookie of the year. Okay, who is it? Luke Robitaille won it. So Luke Robitaille had a very good career. It's not that surprising. But it is, it is still pretty jarring to say, like, yeah, even the best goalie in all of hockey was not the best rookie that year. Luke Robitaille in his rookie season playing for the Los Angeles Kings put up 84 points in 79 games. So pretty fucking good. Got to give some credit there. But this was not the end of Ron Hextall's accolades from his rookie year. First, you know, before we get to the playoff run that year, he 
does have a reputation for being not only aggressive in coming out of his net, he has a reputation for being aggressive towards his opponents and getting into fights and slashing people with his stick. Swings his stick at a couple guys early in his season, and they ask him about it afterwards, and he says, listen, I used to be worse. I think I've learned to control my temper. Spoiler alert, he did not learn how to control his temper. That's Ron Howard in Arrested Development adding that part. Exactly. Narrator. (laughs) Two months later, he is playing against the New Jersey Devils, and he gets in a fight with Elaine Chevre, the Devils goaltender. They lost to the Devils. The Flyers wanted revenge for a punch that uh, Kale Samuelson had taken from Steve Richmond at the end of the game. So Hextall goes right after Chevrier. This fight is labeled like a heavyweight going against a lightweight. Hextall absolutely pummels this guy. And, you know, the NHL really frowns on this kind of behavior. They don't, they don't take too kindly to it. So Hextall and seven other players were each fined $300 for their role in the brawl. <laughs> I would never swing a fist again my goodness 300 whole dollars 300 whole 300 whole u.s dollars not even canadian dollars these are american dollars that they're being fined hextall does have this reputation but now we're gonna flash forward in his rookie season flyers go on quite the run they finished first in the east and this holds up throughout the playoff run they beat the rangers 4-2 the Islanders, it does go to seven, but they pull it out. And then in the Eastern Conference Finals, they beat Le Batin, Montreal Canadiens, four to two to advance to the Stanley Cup Finals. Now, it is the late 80s, so I'll give you one guess who they ended up playing. Islanders? The Oilers. Oh, late, late 80s. They end up playing the Edmonton Oilers, the same team that he made his debut against, letting the first shot in and then not letting in one more shot the rest of that first debut game against the Oilers. And Hextall has a hell of a series. In fact, Wayne Gretzky says after, between the the sixth and seventh game, so entering game seven of the series, Wayne Gretzky describes him, and again, a rookie at the time, probably the best goaltender I've ever played against in the NHL. And that's the best hockey player ever saying that. The GOAT is saying that this is the GOAT at stopping me from doing what I need to do. So incredibly high praise right off the bat. Uh, But, you know, as we alluded, Hextall might say that he has learned to control his temper. He really is not. So in game four of those finals, he receives two penalties. First, a 10-minute misconduct for expressing his displeasure at the fourth Euler goal. And then later, he receives a five-minute major for slashing Kent Nielsen. The latter incident was because Hextall had received a slash from Glenn Anderson, and this was uncalled by the refs. So... Ronnie just sees red and just slashes the next guy that he sees. And uh, he thought that, you know, he was slashing the guy that slashed him, but he ends up getting the wrong guy. And uh, afterwards, you know, they say, do you, have, do you feel any remorse? And Hextall expressed remorse only for striking the wrong player and not for his action. He says, if somebody slaps you in the face, you're going to slap him back. It's not like he gave me a touch to jar the puck. What's he going to do next? Break my arm? I'm sorry it was Nielsen and not Anderson that I hit, but I just reacted. At the time... It seemed like the right thing to do. <laughs> the, the last one doesn't. The last one really ties it all together. <laughs> At the time, with the benefit of hindsight, would I have done things differently? Probably not. At the time, it seemed reasonable. Um, Look, if he got the guy that got him, it's a much different conversation. Right. I mean, it's, you know, it's like it's like the classic, um, you know, middle school, high school. Somebody taps you on the shoulder. You look and then you see somebody else is there and you're like, what the fuck, man? And they're just caught in the crossfire. So 
Fortunately, Kent Nielsen did get caught in the crossfire there. Fortunately for Kent Nielsen, in that decisive game seven, the Oilers do win. And, you know, MVPs probably go in the Gretzky, right? Does not. The Conn Smythe Trophy goes to Ron Hextall, despite losing. Uh, and he became the fourth player in NHL history to win the Conn Smythe, despite being on the losing team. So, again, he's won a Vezina. He's won a Conn Smythe without winning a Stanley Cup. And he didn't win the Calder. He didn't win the Calder because Luke Robitaille, those 84 points in 79 games were just too much for, for anybody to overcome. Six dig goals. The NHL has a history of this. They don't like giving goalies any awards that aren't the Vezina. I mean, it, yeah. it, took, it took Carey Price an insane season to win the heart. Igor is on pace to break every record in NHL goalie history other than games started. But probably not going to even come close to winning the heart. It's kind of like pitchers with the MVP. They consider exactly. the Cy Young to be the MVP uh, for pitchers, so they don't want to give them votes for that. Absolutely. And with goalies, they say, if you get the Vezina, that's your trophy. We're not going to vote for you for anything else. Yeah, I, I think Justin Verlander and Clayton Kershaw were probably the last two pitching MVPs we'll ever see. I'm Okay, Shohei Otani doesn't count. <laughs> he half counts. No. <laughs> no, he's just, he's he different. He different. It's... Very fair. Very fair. Yeah, Sho- Shohei belongs in a category of his own. But so anyway, you know, that's the rookie season. Second year. Uh, he does get an eight-game suspension to start the next season because of that slash on Nielsen. So I do respect that the NHL didn't want to compromise the integrity of the final by getting rid of this incredible goalie. But there does have to be a punishment. So he does get an eight-game suspension to start the next season. But then, as we already mentioned, one of his first games back after that suspension is against the Bruins. And he gets that goal. So he becomes the first player in NHL history as a goalie to score a goal. Plays uh, 62 of the 67 games in which he is available that year. Does take a slight step back. So he only wins 30 of those games and gives up 3.50 goals per game. He did set two more records in these first two seasons. So in both season number one and season number two, Ron Hextall accumulates 104 penalty minutes. In his rookie season, he became the first goalie ever to eclipse 100 penalty minutes in one season. Then he goes ahead and ties it the second season. Now you figure we're going to come back after that. We're a young, rambunctious kid. We've learned. We're going to calm it down a little bit. I mean, he even said in his rookie season, you know, I've learned to control my temper. So, you know, figure third season is the charm. We're good now. So he actually goes ahead and has 113 penalty minutes. Right? What, a Philly boy. what a Philly boy. I mean, if ever there was a player that was designed for Philadelphia, I think it is Ron Hextall. Just not only is he great at what his actual job is, he also beats people up for fun. There's a classic Flyers moment. Basically, the Flyers have been getting their ass kicked this entire series, mostly because in game one, one of their best players was cheap shot and taken out. It was taken out by Chris Chelios, actually. It was Chris Chelios that hit Brian Prop in game one, caught him with a flying elbow to the side of the head, knocked him unconscious. And game four, Flyers are getting murdered. Chelios dumps the puck in for like just a late dump and chase. And Hextall comes out of the net, not to play the puck. He skates straight at Chelios and just fucking tackles him and just starts wailing on him and causes an absolute line brawl. Hextall gets a 12-game suspension. For, for this attack. Following the announcement of the suspension, 
Hextall did state his disappointment in the suspension and said that his intention was to fight Chelios and not hurt him. He just wanted to fight him. <laughs> Look, people don't get suspended for fights. Honestly, it's a fair point. Unless you really beat the shit out of someone, you don't get suspended for a fight. You just get five minutes. It's, it's the most blatant encouragement of violence outside of boxing that we do really have. It's, and you know, and hockey has gotten better with it, I guess. I guess better is the word you would use. Yeah. Some of, some of the old timers would say that they've gotten worse with it and trying to discourage it. But, you know, at the end of the day, why was hockey the one sport where fighting was just like, oh, yeah, this is just it's part of the game? Like, it's, it's the yeah. only sports video game where you also at some point have to learn different controls for fighting. <laughs> I was, that was always my Achilles heel playing NHL too, because. I was pretty good. I was pretty pretty good in NHL. But that was always a weak spot in my game. So, you know, I was more of an NHL purist myself. I, I always tried to not engage in fights. You know, so part of the reason why Hextall did fall off from his rookie year heights is with this aggressive style of play, you know, overextending himself more than the regular goalie may, he always had just nagging groin injuries. So th- this always popped up. In the 90-91 season, he only appears in 36 games. The Flyers fail to qualify for the playoffs. And, um, you know, at this point, Flyers are thinking, how, how much is actually worth it? This guy's always injured. When he's not injured, he's getting in fights. He's getting suspensions. So they end up actually including Hextall in the trade to the quarterback Nordiques, which brought Eric Lindros to the Flyers. What it really amounted to is that it was... Hextall and Peter Forsberg. I want to say Rob Brindamore might have been in that trade too. So it was quite the fucking haul that the the Nordiques got. But his his injury problems continue um, in Quebec. He ends up after one season, he gets traded to the Islanders. This was a move that the Nordiques made in part because of the injuries, but also because there was an expansion draft that year. You could only protect one goalie. So they figured... We're going to protect the goalie that is healthy and doesn't fight people. And instead of risking losing Hextall for nothing, they do trade him away to the Islanders. Uh, he lasts one season with the Islanders, and then time for a homecoming. Comes back to Philadelphia. Comes back to the Flyers. And at this point, Hextall is a changed man. Terry Murray, the Flyers coach, says emotionally he's really under control. An article in the New York Times also supports this belief, saying... This isn't the same Ron Hextall that people remember so fondly. Even is described as a calming influence to his teammates to encourage them to not get caught up in these fighting antics and to, you know, just play their game. This is not a buildup to me doing a switcher on you. He actually doesn't get in any fights in this whole playoff run. In his return to Philadelphia, so not in the first season, but he does co-feature with Garth Snow in goalie for the 97 run to the Stanley Cup Finals, where they were swept by the Detroit Red Wings, who were just a machine. Yeah, I mean, first you run into the late 80s Oilers, and then you run into the late 90s Red Wings. It was it was tough breaks. It was tough breaks all around. Yeah, so Hextall started all of the Eastern Conference Finals, and then the first game of the Stanley Cup Finals. They go back to Garth Snow for game two. They go back to Hextall for the last two. And, and you know, they're, they're just basically throwing shit at the wall at this point. But there's nothing you can do. So they do get swept. Hextall then continues with the Flyers for two more seasons after this. But, again, he's getting older. The injuries are catching up to him. 
So they leave him unprotected in the expansion draft prior to the 1999 season. Um, do either of you remember the expansion team for the 1999 season? I want to say Carolina Ducks. Hurricanes. So the Hurricanes were the Hartford Whalers down. Oh, yeah, of course. That's relocation. Say with Nordiques going to the Avalanche. Um, right. Lightning. Not the Lightning. Not the Ducks. The, te- the team no longer exists. Oh, the Thrashers. That? The Atlanta mm. Thrashers. So they leave them unclaimed, and the Atlanta Thrashers have the chance to take this heralded goalie with all these records. And they don't. He, he just doesn't get picked up. So then the Flyers wave him, and uh, Hextall says, you know, the Flyers don't want me. It might be time to hang him up. So he does then announce his retirement just ahead of the 1999 season, September 6, 1999. Ron Hextall decides to hang him up. He did have an international career, which is worth noting. Was part of Team Canada for the 87 Canada Cup. You may think, you know, Hextall is somebody who's aggressive towards other teams, but of course would be fiercely loyal to his own teammates. And you'd be wrong because <laughs> in, a, in a practice session, so they're not even scrimmaging. It's just, you know, a practice session. We're going through drills. He chops uh, Sylvain Turgeon's arm because he thought that he was coming in too close to goal. So he just wanted to give him a friendly little slash across the arm to let him know to back up. And Turgeon misses the entire tournament with a fractured arm because of the slash from Hextall. So maybe because of that, maybe because of other reasons, Hextall is named the backup to Grant Fur and does not appear in any games. Five years later, he does get to represent Canada in the 92 Worlds, plays five games. Only records one win, but has a goals against average of 2.86. Canada is eliminated in the quarterfinals. These days, Hextall is working in management for a different franchise. He was the Flyers GM for a few years. Uh, Now he's with the Penguins organization. And, of course, he does hold one more record in addition to being that first goalie to score a goal in the NHL. He's also, to nobody's surprise, the all-time NHL goaltender leader in penalty minutes with <laughs> yeah. 569. Very nice amount of penalty minutes for Ron Hextall. Uh, the next closest is Billy Smith. I don't know who the fuck that is, but Billy had 475. Tom Brasso, also don't know who the fuck that is, with 437. And then Ed Belfour is fourth with 380. No one's going to probably be sniffing that anytime well, soon. Well, especially, you know, in the in the modern era, because, you know, people talk about Will Chamberlain's record being so hard to reach because the pace of play at that time was so high. So like basketball just really isn't played that way anymore. And I would say the same thing with this goalie record. You know, not only is violence down across the board in general in NHL, but I feel especially with the goalies, you really got to go out of your way to, to get a penalty as a goalie. You know, it needs to be intentional. So I don't really see that happening anymore. But so Ron Hextall, an incredible start, ends up being derailed by some injuries, unfortunately, but does get that Vizina his rookie year, does get that Conn Smythe in the losing effort his rookie year. Second year becomes the first goalie ever to score in an NHL game and presumably the lifelong record holder for penalty minutes for a goalie with 569, two records that will... One that will definitely never be broken, right? Like, nobody will ever beat him you to be the, be the first, first once. Up. You can only be the first once. That first hundred games is is so dense. You've got the Vizina. You've got the Consmite. You've got the goal all in that. You've got an insane workload for a kid, again, coming off two AHL seasons. 
Yeah, is the rest of it kind of disappointing after that? Sure. But there are plenty of guys that would kill for that first hundred games. Came in like a like a comet, a bright burning light, and the light did go out quicker than he would have liked. But again, still still getting the, the flames that burn hockey. bright can never burn too long. <laughs> exactly. No, I think I think that's a beautiful way of pointing it. You know, Ron, thank you for being the ultimate flyer. Wish we could have got a cup with you, but it's okay because I'm not gonna speak negatively on you for fear of. Getting my ass kicked. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so you say Ron Hextall's name three times into your ear, and he comes and beats the shit out of you. <laughs> He's in this state, so it could happen. Yeah. I, look, I'm not going to try it. It's I will never say Candyman in front of a mirror. Like fuck it, if it's real or not, I don't <laughs> care. I don't need to to welcome that possibility into my life. But uh, yeah, anyway, so that's that that that's Ron. I'm I'm curious to hear two more athletes that we have with their own silly, unique records so um xavier xavier wants me to go to him and i'm a contrarian but i'm gonna be a contrarian's contrarian i'm gonna contradict (laughs) myself and i'm gonna go to xavier an anti-disestablishmentarianist i appreciate it so i'm gonna talk about motorsport so i need to give a little bit of context here because motorsport is very 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 large there are literally a thousand different motorsport competitions all over the world and it would be impossible to name them all. So there's going to be a lot of acronyms here, and I want to just give a little bit of background. The four or five most popular motorsport competitions are Formula One, NASCAR, IndyCar, MotoGP, and World Rallycross. For today, we don't have to worry about MotoGP, which is motorcycles, or World Rallycross, which is off-road. But we do need to know open-wheel racing. That's mid-engine cars with wheels outside the main body. and only one seat that encloses the driver with their head sticking out. That is Formula One, and that's IndyCar. So the uh, cool race cars. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> the differences between the two, Formula One are meticulously crafted cars that are teams of manufacturers and engine makers. So they're very different. And your team is pretty much only as good as who's making the parts of your car. IndyCar, they're almost all the same. Very similar production and very standard, where it's more of the driver versus the car material. Then we have stock car racing, which uses modified production cars that have been customized for racing purposes. They look more like a normal car you would see on the street. NASCAR is the most famous stock car racing uh, governing body. Otherwise known as the not cool race cars. (laughs) Otherwise known as they go around in a loop for for the most part. Yeah, actually, I shouldn't put that on the cars. Like, it's just, I'm not here to say that NASCAR is not an incredibly difficult thing to do. They're 100% athletes, all that good stuff. Man, it is just not compelling to watch an oval, though. All the cool courses with indie cars and stuff, they do sick turns and stuff. And then there's an oval. What I love about a lot of, like, IndyCar and, like, F1 is, like, they'll literally just, like, shut down a city. And the, the track is just a city. Yeah, it's a, so Formula One is all street courses. IndyCar is a mixture of street courses and ovals. And then NASCAR is almost all racing ovals, except for a very, some very few uh, exceptions. Additionally, there's a type of racing called endurance racing, which uses specialized cars and teams of drivers and mechanics to keep a car racing for 6, 12, 18, 24 hours at a time. So that's like Le Mans? Le Mans, yeah. Most gas wins, baby. With that, with that you know, context in mind, uh, real quick, wanted to bring up 
two things that were very fun records, not enough to talk about. The shortest ever Formula One career, uh, a man named Ernst Luf, who was a, a, a German man, who competed in one Formula One race, the German Grand Prix in 1953, started the race, his fuel pump exploded immediately, and he went a total of six feet before his car broke down. So his Formula One career was going six feet because he never entered another one. See, I thought we were going time here. You're, you're hitting us with distance. The other one, uh, another German man named Hans Heyer, has an unfortunate hat trick. Hans was a touring car driver and you know, kind of funny man who liked to entertain. One day he decided he wanted to try to qualify for a Formula One race. He, he showed up and he tried but didn't qualify. He was named as one of the alternates in case anything happened. So he was still there when the race started. And he decided he wasn't going to let not qualifying stop him. So after the race had started, he snuck out onto the track with his car from the side pit and raced for 10 laps before his car broke down. And when they found out, he was given a, uh, a DNF for did not finish and its disqualification and then banned for life. So he got a did not qualify, did not finish and disqualified all in one race. The only person to ever have that happen. Do not pass go. Do not collect $100. Do not ever show your fucking face here again. No, I, Hans found a way. It's the life a way finds go. a way. But now that we have that out of the way, uh, the record that I want to talk about is the record for most years in between wins at the Indianapolis 500. Our story starts about as far away from Indianapolis, Indiana, as you can get in the city of Bogota, Colombia. Yeah, fuck, it's very far. Do you remember Juan Pablo Montoya? I definitely know the name. I definitely know the name. So Juan Pablo Montoya was born on September 20th, 1975. And at an early age, he was taught karting techniques from his father, Pablo, who was an architect and a motorsport enthusiast. He started driving open-wheel cars, competing in Columbia's Formula Renault series in 1992, where he won four of the eight races he competed in. He moved to the U.S. to learn at the Skip Barber Racing School. Do you have to be like kind of rich in Colombia to be able to do all this? Honestly, I'm not sure. It, it feels like it should cost a lot of money. Uh, his father was an architect, so maybe he had, maybe, maybe they had some money. Maybe he just won a lot of money in, in, in the races, and that helped pay for the continued education in it. So in 1994, he's competing in three different racing series. He does the Sudam 125 karting series for go-karts, where he wins the title. Uh, the Barber Saab Pro Series, where he finishes third overall and wins two races, and Formula N in Mexico, where he won the title. Is it Formula Enye in Mexico? Uh, it probably is Formula Enye. I hope they include the tilde. That's all. After that, he realizes he's got to move up in, if, if he wants to improve. But he moves to Europe, where he participates in the 1995 British Formula Vauxhall Championship, where he finishes third overall with three wins. Then he competes in Formula 3 in 1996. He wins two races and finishes fifth overall. So I just say, I hate their naming conventions. Yeah, they're not great. They're not great. And, you know, it's going to get a little more confusing here. In 1997, he gets the chance to compete in the International Formula 3000 Championship. To that point, is the second-tier feeder league to Formula 1. It's more simplified now, where it's just Formula 1, Formula 2, Formula 3... But back then, there, it was Formula 3000 Championship, the International Formula 3000 Championship. 
And it's so dumb. Yeah, yeah. So he competed for the Austrian team RSM Marco, which is now Red Bull Racing. So this season, Montoya wins three of the ten races and finishes second overall, just one and a half points behind uh, Brazilian Ricardo Zanta and 12 and a half points ahead of third place Jason Watt of Denmark. During this time, he's noticed by Formula One team Williams Racing, who invited him for a trial. Williams, at this point, is a very, very, very big team. They had won championships in 96 and 97. Formula One has two separate championships. There's the Constructors title, which is for the team, and then the Drivers Championship, which is for individual drivers. Williams invites him for a trial, and they hire him as a test driver. So in 1998, he's working for Williams as a test driver while still competing in Formula 3000, this time with Supernova Racing. Montoya wins four of the 12 races during the season, and he does win the overall points title. He even set a record at uh, Pau, where he lapped the entire field. At this point, he is ready to make the leap to Formula One. Unfortunately, Williams is having some issues. They had used Renault as an engine supplier during their championship streak, but Renault had left the F1 business, and so they had to run uh, lesser engines in 98, and they failed to win a race for the first time in over a decade. Their team owner, Sir Frank Williams, needed a shakeup to help the underperforming team, and he has this really promising young driver under contract who's tearing up this feeder division, so he does what any good owner would do. He trades him to Chip Ganassi in America to compete in the CART Championships in exchange for previous F1 driver Alex Zanardi because they just decided to swap drivers for some reason as if they're playing baseball. Trades are not yeah. a thing that actually happen in driving, but... Were there cash considerations too, or like an Williams, engine to be named later? Williams kept his contract. They just swapped him for a year, technically ended up being two years, for this guy Alex Zanardi. Also, there's going to be some weird acronyms coming up, but what you need to know is CART, D-A-R-T, was the sanctioning body for open wheel racing in the USA from 79 to 2003. They had a split in 1996 that saw the Indy Racing League, IRL, break off. IRL took control of the Indianapolis 500. Eventually, CART filed for bankruptcy, and after a couple of years, its assets were merged into IRL, which is now IndyCar. IndyCar is the current sanctioning body for open wheel racing. Before IndyCar, it was Champ Car. Before Champ Car, it was Cart. Before Cart, it was USAC. And before that, it was AAA. Yes, that AAA. Shout out AAA. Yeah. AAA actually had to get out of the business after a terrible crash that killed dozens of spectators at a race. And they decided we should focus on actually just helping drivers in regular situations instead of racing. It's, uh, it's pretty tough to sell yourself as, like, the best overall automobile safety organization if you were associated with massive racing pileups. Yeah, I mean, this was a, a crash that caused debris to fly into the stands, killing dozens of spectators bad. Oh, shit. Yeah, it was real bad. It was in 55, I think. Ah, there wasn't safety regulations back then. There wasn't. If, if, those, if those spectators had been wearing seatbelts, they probably would have been <laughs> fine. So, in 99... Zanardi and Williams struggle in F1, but Montoya has no such issues adjusting to a cart. He wins seven of 20 races, including two different streaks of three wins in a row. Going into the last race of the season, Montoya was nine points back of Dario Franchetti uh, for the title. He ends up finishing fourth and got 12 points, while Franchetti finished 10th for three points, meaning they tied. Love a tie. So what's the tiebreaker? The tiebreaker was wins. And Montoya had seven, 
to Franchetti's three, meaning he wins the championship his rookie season and also wins Rookie of the Year, becoming the second and final driver in cart history to win both Rookie of the Year and the championship in the same season. Montoya is, is throwing the gauntlet down for uh, Ron Hextall. He just outdid two major accomplishments there. It's he doesn't get to celebrate. Level up. He doesn't get to celebrate because during the race, a crash claimed the, the life of driver Greg Moore. And the news was withheld from the drivers because they didn't want to stop the race. They wanted the race to keep going since it was the last one of the season. So once the drivers finished, they had them all go straight to the pits instead of going to celebrate where they were informed of the news that their competitor had just died. So there's no celebration for either Montoya or the driver who wins that race. It's just a somber, let's just all go home. I mean, that's such a tough spot. That reminds me of like Joe Dumars for the Pistons. There's a great story of one of their big playoff games. I, I believe it was his father passed away like just prior to the game. And they were debating, do we tell him, do we not? They didn't tell him. Dumars ends up having like the best playoff game of his career. And then there's uh, the, the one the one shot I remember is like he threw up like a prayer, basically. And it goes in and he kind of just like looked up and pointed up and like he didn't even know what had happened at that point. I don't think there's a right answer in those situations. The thing just... about racing is that, you know, unfortunately, this happens a lot. Like this is a very, very dangerous sport because you have big hunks of metal going at 200 miles per hour, especially pre 2000. And even still today, like you see many serious injuries and unfortunately quite a few fatalities. After this season, Williams wants to call him back and go perform in F1 because they're like, why did we let this guy go? But Montoya doesn't want to go back to Formula One right now. He's enjoying his time here and he's not very happy with the Williams people. But he wants to stay one more season in cart. This season, Ganassi Racing uh, switches from Honda engines to Toyota engines, uh, which is the first time that Toyota engines have been used. They're not very reliable. Uh, Montoya fails to finish 40% of his races, but he does still win two of them, including the first ever win by a car with a Toyota engine in uh, open wheel racing and finishes ninth in the driver's standing. But his real success doesn't come in the kart series. So the Genassi team becomes the first kart team to, quote, cross over and compete in the IRL-run Indianapolis 500 since the 1996 split. Due to IRL rules, the Genassi team has to use different part suppliers. So they're not running Toyota engines, and they qualify really strong. Montoya qualifies second, and he starts on the middle of the first line. After qualifying, he actually leaves Indianapolis. They go compete in the kart series race in Na at the Nazareth Speedway in, P in Pennsylvania, where he finishes fourth, and then flies back right afterwards because the Indianapolis 500 is the next day. He Busy start man. The start of the, of the race is delayed a couple hours because of rain before they really get started at 2 o'clock. Pole sitter Greg Ray uh, holds on to the lead for the first 20 laps or so before Montoya overtakes him on lap 27. And Montoya is just blitzing the field. His lead was up to 30 seconds before the first caution of the day on lap 66. But even after that, he holds the lead all the way up until lap 174 when he has to take a pit stop during a caution and his teammate Jimmy Vassar would stay out, passes him. But Vassar's on old tires and only takes six laps for Montoya to take his lead back. And he holds on, breezes to the finish. Becomes the first rookie to win the Indy 500 since Graham Hill in 1966, and the first Colombian to ever win it, while leading for 167 out of 200 laps. That's some domination. He completely dominates the field here. 
when he takes the checkered flag, Janassi shouts into his headset, you're world famous. You know, Montoya kind of just shrugs it off and says, I feel the same, happier than I was an hour ago. One thing about, about Juan Pablo Montoya is that he doesn't usually get happy. People who know him say it looks like he gets really angry. Although he likes to say, he says that his anger is happiness. So, you know, if he's ever angry, you know he's happy. That's the emotion that he... Intensity. Action displays itself in many ways. After this 2000 season, uh, Montoya says, okay, I'll go back and agrees to a deal with Williams to compete with them in Formula One. He's there for four seasons. He finishes sixth overall in 2001, and then third overall in 2002 and 2003, including a win uh, in 2003 at the Monaco Grand Prix, considered one of the most prestigious races in the world. Has a nondescript fifth overall finish in 2004 before then moving over to McLaren. Has a great 2005. Uh, he wins three races and finishes fourth overall in the standings, but he's having some tension with them. Uh, he doesn't like the way that the McLaren cars handle after his time with Williams and after his time in America. So he's not, not having a great 2006 season, and he shocks the F1 world by hosting a midseason press conference on July 9th where he announced uh, he had signed a deal with NASCAR to race for Chip Ganassi again starting in 2007. This is a big deal because Formula One people think NASCAR is stupid. Why would anyone ever go from Formula One to NASCAR? Stunned McLaren announced a few days later, like, we're not letting you race for us ever again. Uh, so oh. <laughs> just go away. And so he ends up moving to NASCAR early. That's, I mean, that's, that seems excessive. Like, that's, that's really um, an elitist action, I would say. Formula One is... I like it, but it's 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 pretty elitist. It, yeah. It's it's Ferrari and Red Bull and McLaren and Mercedes Benz. Yeah, I was gonna say like, it's Ford it's and Toyota. Just, yeah. It's yeah. it's the parking lot of the penthouse versus the parking lot of of the people working on the first floor. It is a very different world. And you know, as I said earlier, NASCAR racing is very different from open wheel racing. Montoya competes in seven full seasons with NASCAR, but he only finished better than twentieth overall once. And during these seven years, he only wins two NASCAR races. The 2007 Toyota Save Mark 350 at Sonoma. The 2010 Hell of a Good Sour Cream Dips at the Glen in Watkins Glen, New York. Everybody's favorite. I mean, renowned. We've had some good, obscure competitions, but that's one of the best titles one of us has pulled out of their ass so far. It, it, it is spelled H-E-L-U-V-A, Hell of a Good, exclamation mark, Sour cream dips at the Glen. Unreal. Phenomenal. And the thing about Old Sonoma and Watkins Glen is that they're the two road course races in NASCAR. So, of course, the open wheel driver wins the actual road course races and not the oval races, the things that are better suited for an open wheel driver. He does show an, a big aptitude for endurance racing at this time. He competed at the Rolex 24 at Daytona, uh, which is one of the three races that make up the informal triple crown of endurance racing multiple times. He wins it in 2007, 2008, and 2013, becoming the first and only NASCAR driver to win it three times. He retires from NASCAR after 2013 when his team declined to renew his contract, and he decided that he wanted to go back to open-wheel driving. So he switches to fully compete in an IndyCar uh, in 2014 for Team Penske. In 2014, he finishes fourth overall in points in his first season in IndyCar and gets his first IndyCar win since the 2000 Indianapolis 500, the ABC Supply 500 at Pocono. 
This race still stands as the fastest 500-mile race in IndyCar history, with an average speed of over 202 miles an hour, and was the first IndyCar 500-miler to be completed in under two and a half hours. He was just flying through that course. Average so, like, the so two times that he does it in a 20-year span, it's, like, two of the most overwhelming wins ever. He is a very good driver who, if he had just stayed IndyCar, could possibly be the best IndyCar driver ever. But the switching back and forth, going across the globe, switching between IndyCar and stock car, unfortunately hampers stats that he was able to put up. So the now 39-year-old Montoya starts pretty strongly in 2015. Uh, He wins the first race of the season, which is the St. Petersburg Grand Prix. By Memorial Day, his strong start had continued. He had three more top five finishes out of the four races that he had run, and spirits were pretty high going into the Indianapolis 500. Montoya doesn't have a great qualifying session. Uh, he finishes 15th, and he's starting on the outside position of the fifth line out of 11. Uh, qualification is extremely important when it comes to open-wheel racing because there are not as many passing opportunities as there are in stock car racing. Things would only get worse. During a practice session the next day, uh, he's out on the, on the course, and James Hinchcliffe drafting behind him uh, when Hinchcliffe suffers a suspension failure and crashes into the wall. It significantly alters the rest of the week, and they have to bring in Ryan Briscoe to replace Hinchcliffe. Before That's race- got to be weird. You're just chilling at home, and then they're like, hey, this guy got fucking metal in his leg. Can you make it down here? We need another racer. And it happens a lot. It weirdly happens a lot. Before race day, fellow Colombian Carlos Huertas was diagnosed with an ear infection and also had to be replaced. Do you, now, do you think that they give him shit for that? Like, listen, fucking this guy has went through his leg. And, oh, I guess your ears hurt, so you can't race. There's four Colombians in the field. I bet you they gave him a ton of shit for it. Uh, <laughs> so here we are, day of the Indianapolis 500. Car started. They're doing the traditional parade laps before the start. Hunter Daly's car lit, lights on fire. He's okay, but his race ends before it even started. Now we finally get to start the race, and there are 31 cars out there. On the first lap, Age Karam squeezes Takuma Sato into the wall. Briscoe spins trying to avoid them. Sato and Briscoe are able to repair their cars, but Karam's day was done. So now we have two racers who made it to the day of the race are both done before the end of lap one. The field is put under caution before they're able to restart. Ramona Di Silvestro rear-ends Montoya. They're during caution, so they're not even really racing at this point. This is not something that should happen. Montoya later said it's his fault for qualifying so poorly. You get stuck with those kind of people. <laughs> but Silvestro gets a race warning, and Montoya's rear, right rear bumper detaches. This means Montoya has to pit real early. And while the caution continues, Montoya is dropped down to 30th, which is last among the cars that are still in the race. The race finally restarts in lap 13. And there's a three-way battle for first between Scott Dixon, Tony Kanaan, and Simone Paginot. At one point, Montoya does take a brief lead solely because he had pitted so much earlier than everyone else that he didn't run out of gas when they did, but it wasn't a real lead. It goes away once he has to pit again. Race continues without much incident for a while until lap 113, when another crash happens that causes a caution. During the caution, James Davison has done his pit stop where he hits his own teammate, Pippa Mann, who is driving down pit road. Pippa Mann is fine. But Davison's car slides into his other teammate, Tristan Volte, and also hits two of Volte's crew members. 
They're okay. One of them breaks his ankle, but no, no serious injuries. But both Volte and Davison, they're done. He just takes out his entire team in <clears> one <throat> swipe. Each of his team members in once, although Pippa Man did get to continue. So next caution happens, lap 153. Tony Kanon loses control of his car, just completely spins out into the wall under no pressure. This caution, though, it does allow Montoya to finally recover from his initial mishap, and he rejoins the pack near the top. After a sloppy next 20 laps with multiple crashes, the race restarted on lap 184 with Will Power in the lead. Will Power, Scott Dixon, and Montoya are battling for the lead. So with four laps left, Montoya uses a slipstream uh, from third place to pass Dixon and then pass Power. He's able to hold on for the last four laps, and he wins his second Indianapolis 500 15 years after having won it for the first time, setting the record for most time in between wins, coming 15 years after his maiden win. And his reaction is pretty great. The guy who's not very usually happy was pretty happy. So in a bookend uh, to his start in Opuo Racing, Montoya, 16 years later, does tie for the IndyCar Championship again with Scott Dixon. This time, he does lose on the wins tiebreaker, 3-2, to two, when Scott Dixon does win the last race of the year at Sonoma. That's 100% fair. If that's what it takes to win, you deserve that win. Yeah, I mean, if, if you come in needing a win and you get it, it's fair Walk enough. Away a champion. Still, Montoya, 39. I think he was almost, I think he was 40 at that point. Ties for first, finished second, has won the Indy 500 this year. It's a good, still a good season for him. He retires after the 2016 IndyCar season, but because racing is a thing that you can keep doing, you know, pretty much as long as you want. There was a 77-year-old who competed in a couple of things a couple of years ago. He continues to compete in the IMSA Sportswear Championship which combines some oval races with endurance races. He also has competed at Le Mans, where he finished third in the LMP2 class and first in the Pro-Am division in 2021. You're saying a lot of things that I remember from a lot of nights of Forza in college. <laughs> so Montoya is one of only 13 drivers to have ever won two legs of the Motorsport Triple Crown. The Triple Crown is considered Seattle's 500 win, Monaco Grand Prix win, and winning Le Mans. But only one driver has ever won the Triple Crown anyway. So being one of the 13 to have won two is still pretty impressive considering the sheer number of drivers that have competed in Formula One, IndyCar, Le Mans, all of that stuff. And then, I mean, you think about just like everyone else with a driver's license. Like, you're such a high percentile of drivers. <laughs> you are definitely in the 99th percentile of drivers while also being in the 1th percentile of most crashes that drivers could have. Yeah, there's, there's your trade-off. Mont Montoya is still, still racing today in these, in these endurance mixed races. But he also came out of IndyCar retirement last year solely to race in the Indianapolis 500, where he finished ninth. Pretty impressive because, you know, he, he is now 46, I believe, and he plans to do so again this year. So, you know, who knows? Maybe if he just keeps deciding, I'm only going to race in the Indianapolis 500 every year, give it another 10 years and maybe he breaks his own record. 
three Indianapolis 500 wins, 30-something years apart. But that is my foray into the world of motorsport and of Juan Pablo Montoya. Yeah, I think we could say, like, safely, that record will be his one way or another, probably forever. <laughs> I absolutely loved Montoya. I absolutely loved Hextall. And here's us. I'm so glad that we will have a chance soon to reconsider them. Because unfortunately, I do now need to bury the two of them <laughs> with oh. a titan in the field of competitive eating. Gentlemen, I bring to you the legend herself, Molly Schuyler. I want to promise, listener, the blank stare that you are exhibiting right now as you hear the name Molly Schuyler, y- you share that same blank stare with my two friends here. But I promise that's not the way you're going to feel about Molly Schuyler at the end of this. Molly Schuyler is born in 1979 in Montevideo. Sorry, that's Montevideo because it is not pronounced in Spanish because it's in Minnesota. It is Montevideo, a town of 5,500 people in Minnesota. However, Montevideo, Minnesota is the sister city of the capital city of Uruguay, Montevideo, which I should point out is a town of 1.1 million. So this city of 1.1 million in South America and this 5,000 town in Minnesota, sister cities... So that's where Molly Schuyler is born in 1979. She grows up in a big family, bunch of brothers, and something that she says, one of her earliest memories, they'd go to buffets and she would just put plates away. She would just completely like embarrass all of the, all of the rest of the people around her. All of her brothers are, are put to shame by just the amount of food that she is able to shovel into her mouth. It, it, it's a prodigy. It's a God-given talent, but... She's a child. This is the 80s, early 90s. And you can't monetize this. Like, this isn't a skill that's worth continuing to have. This is a thing about her that she can eat a lot, but it's not anything that she pursues for many years. In fact, she goes to college. Uh, she double majors in marketing and business management. And then she marries Air Force husband. They're still married today. Have four children, which uh, to her is, quote, too many. Um, <laughs> so she's a stay-at-home mom. She wants to earn some extra cash uh, eventually as the kids start to grow up. And so around 2010, she becomes a waitress at Applebee's. And this is where she finds her first ever eating contest, like a a real eating contest. It's a bacon eating contest. She wins. She wins free bacon for a year. And then she finds out that you can make money doing these. To give everyone a little bit of context on competitive eating, would you guys like to take a guess as to the first food that we have like records of in modern history as being a, a competitively eaten food? Pasta. Why well, is the? I mean, it's the hot dog eating contest is the one everybody knows. It is pies. It is oh. pie eating contests, which I think when you say it, you're like, oh, of course, pie eating right. contest. That record that we have, the first one in like modern history, comes from Toronto in 1878. Albert Piddington. We do not know how many pies he ate to win, but we do know that he did win, and that first prize was, and I quote, a handsomely bound book. So this is, uh, for, for many years after this, it starts to proliferate, and if you're thinking of, like, state or county fair, when you're thinking pie eating contests, that is 100% one of the two biggest places where these eating contests are taking place. But there's one other place in this, like, late 1800s, early 1900s where it is a, a really big deal, and that's at Fat Men's Clubs. Fat men's clubs are exactly what they sound like. They were clubs in the late 19th, early 20th century where it, you just had to be a fat man, typically also a rich man, but you literally had to publicly weigh in 
in order to like get membership and be at least 200 pounds to just be then in this club of fat rich men and these fat men's clubs existed all over the country when you had your public weigh-ins it was a whole to do there were like prizes for the records and stuff i'm very sad that it's 200 pounds is the limit because now I should go find a fat man's club. That was that was the lower limit. You had to be at least that much. And because of this, they also often host things like eating contests. It's a social club. This is pretty much like the record of competitive eating during this time. And I just had to pull out one, we'll call it box score, of a Frank Doltzer in 1909 at the Manhattan Fat Men's Club. He put away this evening 275 oysters eight and one-eighths pounds of steak, 12 rolls, three large pies, and he washed it all down with 11 cups of coffee. So hard work. The plumber of this establishment better be the most well-paid member of the entire club. Like, <laughs> that's horrifying. So, yeah, and I mean, eventually, fat men's clubs kind of die out because people start saying, oh, you know, it's maybe not the best thing to to promote obesity as the ultimate entrance into high society. So there are not really fat men's clubs anymore. And the sport, as it is, kind of sees a nadir until, as you alluded, Diaz, the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest comes along. Now, Nathan's Hot Dog Contest would have had you believe up until recently that it was founded in 1916 by a number of Italian immigrants who on July 4th wanted to have a contest to see who was the most patriotic by eating the most hot dogs. This was finally admitted in 2010 to be an outright fabrication, 100% a lie, there is no truth to it whatsoever. The Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest was founded in 1972. Uh, so it has only been going on for 50 years rather than the 100 plus that they would have you believe. Since 1972, on July 4th, got the Nathan's Hot Dog Contest every year. Since the 90s, they've had the Mustard Belt, which the showmanship of it, uh, which is much equated to not anyone from the uh, Nathan's Hot Dog family originally, but actually from a marketing firm they eventually bring in later on. This is the Shea Brothers, who are the minds and the announcers still for it. They're the ones who first start to talk about this mustard yellow belt as being created by descendants of Fabergé, the guy who made the eggs for the Romanov <laughs> dynasty in, in Russia. And it's, it had been lost to the Far East for decades until it was returned by a, a Japanese competitor in the 90s. Really, it was awarded once in 1986 in like a one-on-one -on -one America versus Japan contest, and then it came back in 1993. Showmanship is big in competitive eating, because at the end of the day, you are watching people stuff their faces so you gotta you gotta make it theatrical it's like wwe uh, it's about the entertainment as much as the actual thing that's happening exactly and they start to kind of get that the, the shea brothers are the reason that that clicks for this this competition and uh it starts to pick up a little bit in the 90s you start to have women competing they are competing for the pepto-bismol pink belt rather than the mustard yellow belt and there's a big dividing line between 2000 and 2001. The guy who wins in 2000 is a guy named Ed Crucci. And he's kind of like the last big guy winner. He's a big 300-pound dude from Queens. The kind of person that, you know, in, in normal life, we would expect to see eat an absurd amount of hot dogs just because they wanted an absurd amount of hot dogs. And then in 2001, a new kind of competitor comes onto the stage. Not entirely new. There had been 
as we've mentioned, a lot of people coming from Japan, but Kobayashi changes the game. In 2001, the record at that point is 25 hot dogs. He, in the 2001 competition, eats so many hot dogs that they run out of numbered panels to hold up to count for him and ends up doubling the record to 50. 50 in a year. And this kind of leap every once in a while. There are big leaps in competitive eating. Kobayashi's is two things. One, really the, the complete overtaking of the sport by the, the skinny guys, you know? And that is because of something that is referred to in the sport as the belt of fat theory. The theory goes that the fat is actually going to restrict your stomach from being able to go out. And so what Kobayashi and all these guys do, they live super fit lives. They do not consume massive amounts of calories. What they do is drink gallons and gallons of water to stretch their stomachs constantly. So they're doing that. They are chewing gum all the time to strengthen those masticator muscles. That is masticator with a C. Dirty people out there. Uh, And then most importantly, they're staying skinny so that they have that elasticity without any kind of blockage from elsewhere in the body. Things start to just kind of pick up. Kobayashi wins the next five for six total consecutive ones until a guy who is still around today, Joey Jaws Chestnut, comes around. And this rivalry between Kobayashi and Chestnut, while it can remain a rivalry, is contemporaneous with our good friend Molly Schuyler starting to have her first eating competition. This is kind of the, the mood of the sport that she walks into. It's it's like a marathon at this point, the way that people have treated the training of it. You know, you can eat several thousand calories in one day if you don't do it a lot. You can run 24 miles as long as you're not running 24 miles every morning and your body won't break down. Other things you have to worry about a little bit in the strategy of how it approaches, which she starts to learn as she gets into this. Uh, she learns about chipmunking. Chipmunking is a practice that people will do right at the end of a contest because any food that is in your mouth before the timer goes off, you are given a reasonable amount of time to swallow. And as long as you are able to swallow it all and don't suffer what is referred to in the sport as a reversal of fortune, which is automatic disqualification, it's vomit for those of you that can't pick up on that. So as long as you can get it down, you still get all that stuff for chipmunking. So she spend some time training. She's got some natural aptitude. One big thing about Molly Schuyler, and again, the dirty minds out there, I need you to be calm about this. She does not chew. She exclusively swallows. Uh, It's something that she said she always did as a child, just does not chew her food whatsoever. And so when Molly Schuyler comes onto the scene for her, we'll call it rookie year in 2012, she's not fucking around. In August, her very first, like, this is not a, a competition. This is more going to a restaurant and saying, yes, I'm going to take that massive 70-pound burger that I need to eat in an hour or less, and then it's free. This is kind of the lifeblood of the sport in between the massive contests. In August, she goes to Stella's Bar and Grill in the Nebraska area, where she's living at the time, and she has the Stellinator. Six patties, six eggs, six pieces of cheese, Six pieces of bacon, fixins, and fries. She is the first ever woman to consume this food and and manage to fight the challenge. And she's not done yet because then in September, she's also going to become the first woman to complete the Sinful Burgers Goliath. Two one and a half pound patties, ten slices of cheese, lettuce, tomato, onion, pickle, an Indian fry bread bun, which is basically just a crispy flat funnel cake as the bun, and a pound of fries. 
She eats all of that in 17 minutes and three seconds. She's not only the first Good woman boy. to complete it, it is the record. Uh, in fact, up until up that now. That's point, disgusting. Yeah, no, it's... I'm going to not do too many descriptions of it, but I do feel like to begin with, I need everyone to understand truly the amount of calories that they're putting into their body. So much food. Uh, that wall that had like had people's pictures who had completed this challenge before had previously been referred to as Randy's wall for Randy Santel, who was the previous owner of the record. That's Molly's wall now. She says, that is my record. That is my wall. Thank you very much. And she's not done getting things named after herself. The next month... Still her rookie year, still just the third month that she has been competitively eating. She goes to the Nebraska Brewing Company. She has the Death Pizza. It is a five-pound pizza slathered with ghost pepper sauce. She's the first person to attempt it and succeed in eating it, so she gets to name it, and she names it Molly's Humble Pie. <laughs> Fantastic. Finally, to close out the year, Randy Santel decides, you know what, I, I want a head-to-head challenge. I need to get my wall back. We're doing the Goliath that, remember, she broke the world record in with 17 minutes and three seconds. This time, 6.45 flat. That remains Molly's wall. So this is a luminous start. Again, Ron Hextall or Juan Pablo Montoya-like, just immediately shooting to the top of the charts. And so she's getting attention now from the governing bodies of the sport. And yes, there are multiple governing bodies. Uh, The main one is the IFOCE, which is basically major league eating. They are the ones that run Nathan's. And since 2009, controversially, they've had exclusive contracts. If you're an MLE eater, you cannot participate in any uh, events that have not been sanctioned by MLE. So this is why Kobayashi has actually not been in the Nathan's eating contest since 2009. He does not want to sign an exclusive contract. He wants to be able to participate in any competition that he sees fit. Part of this is You can make more money doing it all the time. Part of it is also a lot of these eaters, they're going to these restaurants and getting free food all the time. They're organizing this ahead of time. This is a publicity thing for the restaurants just as much. It's a very symbiotic relationship between these places that make these insane food challenges and the people that decide to take them on. If they're going to lose money, they want that publicity, and and a lot of the eaters understand that. So Molly Schuyler is also one of the people that does not want to sign that exclusive contract with MLE. Fortunately, that does mean we will never see her at the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest, like we see Joey Chestnut, the most famous of the MLE athletes. But the good news is there is another body that runs some other very big competitions, and that is the Association of Independent Competitive Eaters. This was founded in 2004 by Arnold Chowhound Chapman and David Corndog Okarma. People have so many nicknames in competitive eating, and I just gotta throw that out there. AICE has two big things. One, anything that it is sanctioned can have any athlete whatsoever, any eater. They can always come and enter it. The other big thing is they abide by picnic-style rules. This is a very important differentiation in how food eating contests can be run because in a picnic-style rule contest, you must pay respect to the food and maintain integrity, dignity, and public reputation of that food item. Basically, you can't, like squish a bunch of stuff together into a patty and shove that down your face. It is essentially like you need to eat each food item as a food item and treat it as such. Once she gets signed to this, she's now an AICE athlete. This is when she's going to set the two records that we really need to, to sit on. First one, I want you to picture 72 ounces of steak. She goes to Sailor's Old County Kitchen in Portland, Oregon. She orders 72 ounces of steak. At the time, the restaurant record for that much steak, 12 minutes and 53 seconds. 
The world record, regardless of gender, the world record for 72 ounces of steak is 6 minutes and 38 seconds. And Molly Schuyler, in one of her first competitions since signing with AICE, eats 72 ounces of steak in 244. (laughs) I don't even know how that's possible. It is just pieces are cut and they fly down her throat. That is, it, uh, it is disgusting. something to behold. Now, uh, this is not something I want to clarify to people. There's not going to be any foley of this at any point. We are not including well, audio of the God. food eating if that is something that is concerned anyone. Now, Nathan's hot dog eating contest, probably the most famous competition, but there's one really big one, or there was one really big one associated with AICE. And this is where Molly Schuyler has her, her most shining moment. Fellas, it's time to talk about Wing Bowl. Fucking a- right. Philadelphia Staple was founded in 1993 by WTEL, then WIP radio station. It was the hosts Al Morganti and Angelo Cataldi. The first one was held in a hotel for a crowd of 150 people, and they set it up the Friday before the Super Bowl because they wanted to distract from the fact that the Eagles were never doing anything the weekend of the Super Bowl. Uh, Some people also claimed that the wing part might have been they were sad about the Buffalo Bills losing all the time. Couldn't get too much confirmation, but I thought I'd throw it out there. And the first ever winner is Carmen Cordero with 100 wings. So that's pretty impressive. That's a lot of wings. That is going to set the bar that will only ever be exceeded. Wing Bowl is always about outdoing, and it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger until by 1998, it is hosted at the Spectrum for a couple years before moving to Wells Fargo. It's basically been in an arena from 1998 all the way through the end of its history. And a big thing about Wing Bowl is in order to qualify... Typically, you could either do one of the feeder wing bowl events that they host, or you get onto the radio station and impress the hosts with an eating challenge. Molly Schuyler, the year before this, went on WIP. Savior, close your ears for this one. Okay. She ate nine pounds of cottage cheese in 114 seconds. I heard it anyway. Oh, God. Oh, that's disgusting. Now, the people of WIP recognize the greatness, unlike you two plebeians, of this competition, and uh, they immediately are like, yes, please, come on in. This is, uh, this is towards the end of some long-time uh, competitors' runs, and so Molly Schuyler is able to compete for the first time. January 31st, it's a pretty wide-open field, and at Wing Bowl 22, not only does she win, she sets another record. In the 30 total minutes... As it's two 14-minute halves and then a two-minute runoff at the end. She eats 363 wing. The all-time record worldwide for any wing-eating competition. And she's not done because Molly Schuyler is about to have the most insane weekend you've ever heard of. That's Friday. On Saturday, she travels to Des Moines, Iowa, where she's going to be in the IHOP Pancake Bowl and a bacon-eating contest on that day. She wins both of those. And then, the next day, on Sunday... February 2nd, still in Iowa, she goes and takes on the Adam Emenecker Challenge. This is basically a five-pound barbecue challenge, which she is now doing for the fourth time, just trying to get her splits down. She is just short of her seven-and-a-half-minute record on the five pounds. She does do it in only seven minutes and 53 seconds. By my estimate, I did some back-of-the-envelope calculations here. Between the 363 wings... 50 pancakes and five pounds each of bacon and barbecue. She consumed 44,000 calories in this weekend. I mean, like, there's no way she just 
allowed all of this to digest normally, right? Like a human being can't she, do that. She swears that she has never thrown up following a mask. Like that is not her strategy. She does not eat something that she's not going to process. And also, this is a 120 pound woman who's doing this. She's got an undercut under her like mohawk ponytail. She has at least 12 facial piercings. Uh, she's fucking radical and is just putting this stuff away. Uh, the 2014 Wing Bowl, some other just real quick notable things for you, Diaz. Jason Kelsey is a celebrity participant, and it is the first year for Wing Bowl Commissioner John Dorenboss. John Dorenboss is the Wing Bowl Commissioner for four years there. Magician. From 2014 to 2018. I, I, know, I know brothers went to that Wing Bowl. Because halfway through the, this, for, I remembered learning about Molly Schuyler because, you know, we did live in Philadelphia at that time. Well, and, See, I, and here's the one thing I'll say. If you were hearing about Molly Schuyler at the Wing Bowl, it did not necessarily have to be this one. Because Molly Schuyler does then compete in several more Wing Bowls. I promise we're going to blow past that record in a second. So she and a guy named Patrick Bertoletti trade back and forth for these three years. He finishes second to her that year. He finishes first with her in second the year after that. And then in their third year together, she once again takes the crown back. So it's one and two finishes for three years. She does not compete in the open field this next year. She's put in a special one-on-one -on -one competition with longtime and five-time champ, uh, Bill Wingador Simmons. El Wingador. Philly El Wingador, who had uh, just been released from his second stint in prison uh, for <laughs> drug possession. He does have one more coming. In 2022, Bill Elwingador Simmons gets arrested for one kilo of cocaine, $4,400, and 254 pounds of marijuana. Yeah, that's not, uh, it's not personal use. <laughs> uh, also, he gets his ass handed to him by Molly Schuyler in their one-on-one. -on -one. She absolutely destroys him. At this point, Molly Schuyler is being talked about as one of the, not just greatest in the sport at the time, one of the all-time greats. This is during Joey Chestnut's run in... Nathan's, but again, they can't compete. He's MLE, she's AICE. We're never going to get to see them head to head. And a lot of people say if it was anything other than hot dogs, they would take Molly. He has perfected that food. But if it was anything else, the volume that she shows, the speed, it's got to be Molly Schuyler. And she has all of that ready for her. And the coup de grace. We're going to our final Wing Bowl ever Wing Bowl 26. The Eagles are actually in the Super Bowl for this Wing Bowl. This is leading up to the Eagles Super Bowl title, and we still have to go through the Wing Bowl, but it, it was different than probably any other one that came before. It looked like just a pageant of celebrating the Philadelphia Eagles. Everyone is decked to the nines. And I do just want to specify, this was not the last Wing Bowl because the Eagles won the Super Bowl. It was already planned that this was the last Wing Bowl. It was known for the entire year to lead up. It ended up being just a very fun coincidence that this was created because the Eagles couldn't win the Super Bowl. And the last one was the year that they won the Super Bowl. But I do just want to comment with that editorial note. It was planned this way. Um, Absolutely. And here's the good news. It was planned to be a momentous occasion. Molly Schuyler is not one to fail to rise to the occasion. Unlike some other people in Wells Fargo that may not have risen to the occasion this particular week, Molly Schuyler's there for you. Now, at this point, she and Patrick Bertoletti had already increased the record. He has the current record of 444 coming into this from Wing Bowl 23, their second matchup. She also had 440 that year, but that is unfortunately slightly less, and neither of them finished with as many the next year, just 429 to 409. But that's the record coming in. 
as I said, Wing Bowl is broken into two 14-minute halves, and then the top 10 go into the eat-off. After those two 14-minute halves, Molly Schuyler has already consumed 455. She has the record before they even enter the two-minute wing-off. And in that two-minute wing-off, she eats 46 more. She breaks the 500 barrier. 501 is the final count. Second place had 396. She laps the field, just wiping everybody else away. This is an even more dominant victory than the Eagles Super Bowl win two days later. And uh, eight months later, there have been some rumors, you know, maybe we bring it back, but it was officially announced eight months later. There will never be another wing bowl. And so not only was that record unattainable by anybody else but Molly Schuyler at that time, there will never even be a chance to topple that record. And so if you decide after this that you want to support Molly Schuyler, a really big thing for competitive eaters is YouTube. She uploads several times a week, uh, just going to these restaurants again and tackling these contests. And look, some of this stuff might have sounded gross to you. I understand that. But I've said this before, and I'll say it again. There's just something about seeing absolute mastery of any sport, anything that you set your mind to. If you are the best at it, I want to see you be the best at it. And folks, if you want to see someone be the best, go to Molly Schuyler dash, and this is now in all caps, mom versus food dash eat like a girl. That is Molly Schuyler's YouTube channel. Can't recommend it enough. That is the story of my guy this week, Molly Schuyler. How you like them apples? Well, I, I would like my apples to not be anywhere near Molly because I'd like to retain my apples and not have them eaten corn all two seconds at a time. It's a, it's a fifth grade word problem. If you have 20 apples and Molly Schuyler sits next to them for two minutes, how many apples do you still have left? Well, so I did the numbers in my head real quick when you said it was 46 wings in two minutes. That's more than one wing every three seconds. Like, that's, that's absurd. It's, it's with the flats in particular. Yep. The wing goes in, yep. bones come out. It's like in Jaws, man. Absolutely absurd. I also, I'm a sucker for round numbers. So the fact that she was able to get to the 500 plateau and just barely eclipse that is very, um, very satisfactory. Well, those are our record holders, but enough of, of the honorifics that they already have. Let's go ahead and, and get to the honorific that we have to bestow. Between your two, the thing I love about Montoya is if he had stuck in that league for any period of time in those intervening years, the idea that he could have been this just all-time great, that's, that's so fascinating that all of the things that pulled him away from that have, have made him instead this still very cool but much more obscure footnote almost. Yeah, he, if, you could have, if he was less of a generalist, and more of a specifist, right? I feel like any of those individual areas of racing, I feel like he could have easily taken over. So then what I would counter and say why I think Molly might need to be the guy is this is such a wide array of different foods, like within competitive eating that she has just absolutely decimated. And you listen, to, to modify another quote, you know, Xavier, you may not like it, but this is what peak performance looks like. I appreciate that you went with that because I was going to say, I, I appreciate what Molly Schuyler has done and no good consciousness that I vote for a guy who, when hearing about the story, made me actually sick to my stomach. 
<laughs> so this I love Montoya. If I'm outvoted here by the two of you, that is fine. But I, I, I just I can't do it. I can't vote for Skyler. I just before I make a decision, I need to get a ballpark estimate, Xavier. How many things did I list that would actually, because of your allergies, kill you if you touched them? That would actually kill me? Um, yeah. It depends on the sauce for the wings. Um, that's a terrible answer. God, that's a, such a bad answer for me. Anything that isn't zero is so bad. Pizza. Anything with pizza because of the tomatoes. Anything that has none tomatoes. Of, none of the Molly's humble pie for you. The answer is many, especially with the quantity that she ate. If it was one of the things, it probably wouldn't kill me. But the quantity that she ate would kill me many times over. But again, I'm still fine if that's the two who you two want. And I can see it in your face. That is, you still want it. Here is what I want. Here is the thing that, that draws me to her. When are we ever going to have a more guy sport than competitive eating? Like, I, I have found a way to bring that to the table. How can we not bring just stuffing your face into these hallowed halls? It belongs here. It is, this is where its home has always been. We didn't know it yet, but now we have this chance, Savior. If only you brought the guy who said... I hope we find uh, aliens because I want to eat an alien one day because I want to eat everything in the world. Tim Eaterx Janice, uh, by the way, who said that. I know they're just uh, such a good nickname. I will abstain from the vote and just let the two of you vote for who I can tell by your faces you want to vote for. Yes, would you like to do the honors? With a, you know, uh, with, with an abstention and then the two actual votes are yes. It, it, I, does that count as unanimous? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. We need to look up Robert's rules. There, there's I, no dissent. We can say that definitely. There is no dissent. So without dissent, having received all active votes of this prestigious voting body, it is our great honor to welcome in Molly Schuyler to the Hall of Guy. And we will be foregoing the standard buffet dinner which we put on for the inductees because molly this is the one time i'm gonna say this you don't have any more shit to prove we're, we're impressed this is, this is all very incredible you don't have to prove anything anymore so molly welcome we, we are we are honored to have you grace this incredible hall it is wonderful to have you here please don't eat the plaque that i will make for you well that's hey that's remember that guy this time folks if you just want to like read some of the stuff, her entire Wikipedia page is just listing the things that she was the first woman to eat. And there's so much more than I brought to the table, but I'm bumpsh. <laughs> I, I got one last thing before we head out. Greg Popovich currently sits it at 1,335 wins. That is tied for the most in NBA history with Don Nelson in the regular season. He's already stood for postseason before, but you know what? Why not finish out the gamut? I'm someone that came to that team very late and I was not around for many of the wins uh, as a fan but he's he is the second or third most influential reason that I care really about the sport of basketball and they're playing the jazz right now and I'm not feeling great about the jazz matchup I gotta say though I really want us to get it done at home and if by the time you've heard this he hasn't made it please then start sending some good vibes our way, because we'll definitely need them at that point. Hey there, folks. Uh, it's Editor James, not Host James now. Don't worry about those good vibes. On March 11th, 2022, Greg Popovich won his 1,336th win, beating the Utah Jazz 104-102, to and I cried all morning the next day. I mean, to me, 
I, I think you got to just say he's the greatest coach of all time based on obviously Tim Duncan is an all time great. He is in the consensus RTG top 10 of all time. But Phil Jackson had Michael Jordan, you know, like I think that's disqualifying. Red Auerbach had Bill Russell and there were eight teams back then. So like for Popovich to do it in this era with as many different iterations as he had, because first he had the Duncan Robinson Twin Towers, which was very brutal, defensive, physical teams. And then to turn into the beautiful game with Tony Parker and Manu, I, I think he's got to be the greatest coach of all time. And he'll, he will very soon, if not already at the time that you're listening to this, be the most prolific in terms of wins. Editor James again. You're goddamn right he is, Diaz. Well, in that case, I've been James. I have been the very grossed out uh, special guest, Xavier. And I am the not grossed out at all and incredibly impressed co-host, Diaz. And as Russ Hodges once said, there's a long drive. It's going to be, I believe, the guys win the pennant. The guys win the pennant. Until next week.